amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to the Football by Football podcast. Let's do it. Let's get into this, folks. It's great to be back with y'all. This is the Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chapman, your host. Got a lot to be excited about. Not that we aren't each and every show, but after you give me a little bye week, you let me stretch my wings, get out there and get back into family life a little bit, uh, take a longer from 10,000 feet kind of view of the Patriots and what lies before them. I think it re-energizes everyone. I really enjoy uh, this show, always have, uh, and now look forward to the second half even a little bit more. It's good to get the juices flowing again, and it's also good to to take a peek at sort of the big picture as opposed to diving in the minutia of each and every uh, game and week's contest, which is what we normally do. So I'm on this show, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time, really not much time at all, quite frankly, on the Chargers game, that being the uh, the last time the Patriots took the field. Uh, you know, a one-score win, uh, an important win. Obviously, you, you put it on the win column, you move forward, but uh, the opportunity there to take a step back because it was the game right before the bye week and because the Chargers were kind of a dangerous opponent, it was legit, and it was something that uh, you have to sort of overcome that mental hurdle they did. It was not a perfect game. We'll talk some here about uh, what I think some of the biggest things they need to address from a team standpoint moving forward, but not just relative to that particular game. Red zone offense probably being the biggest of all of that. Now, to again, sort of step back and take a little bit of a big picture view of what's going on with your team right now as they head into Denver uh, to face the Broncos and head into this very difficult stretch of games that the Patriots have coming up where they go on the road an unusual amount of time. This is a really... Really bizarro kind of stretch that the Patriots have now before them. Uh, they get the bye week. That's great. So you go in nice and fresh to Denver. That's actually a nice little boon. But you go on the road to Denver to to the Raiders, uh, and then you play the Dolphins at home, and then after that they go on the road for three in a row. So five out of six road games, but with the benefit of the freshness from a bye week to start the thing. But five out of six on the road. I certainly, as a player, never experienced that. Uh, it's a rarity. I don't, you know, this isn't a ESPN stats and info or pro football reference kind of thing where I can go search and tell you if that's ever happened before. I know the four out of five thing happens occasionally. You just, you know, plop it down in the middle there, uh, or, you know, three or four is very common. Four or five is, is happens five or six. That, that, that just to me seems like an oddity in the schedule. Um, you know, so it is what it is and you got to overcome it, but as I, as I sort of look forward here, though, to what they're going to be dealing with, we want to, we want to get into sort of the tra- transactional stuff, the stuff that's going on down on the ground there in Foxborough. And I think that first means we need to, need to look at the roster, right? And there's been a lot of these stories that we've maybe alluded to on the show uh, or the, sort of the, the hopeful thing that you don't want to spend a lot of time or put a lot of stock into, uh, like guys coming back, because we just don't know the news inside the walls there. At Patriot Place, and I think that's very important because of guys like Shane McClellan, who uh, was a guy that 
personally, if you, we're talking about this stuff, at least for me on Nesson, uh, leading into the season, I, I figured McClellan to be a big part of what they'd be doing. Uh, he gets banged up, gets a head thing. Uh, so this is, and, and, and then, you know, goes on this IR portion at the beginning of the year to where he's a potential bringback guy. He's a guy that you know, can come back here from this new little quirk they have in the injured reserve uh, designation where he can come back after a certain amount of time. Um, McClellan apparently got back on the field and had a setback. And so to, to first here acknowledge there, there's a human side to this, uh, uh, what little interaction I've had with Shane McClellan, I met him a few times, uh, various Patriots events uh, where he's been there, chatted with him you know, a handful of times, like I said, but he seems like a really nice guy. Seems like a well-liked dude on the team. He's a real solid vet. Um, you know, I have other friends on other teams that have, have that know him uh, from his time out there in Utah, uh, and, and just speak really highly for him. So, to me, the 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 reason that's important is this is a good guy that did all, did all the right things for you. You know, sort of integrating himself to the team last year was a part of a championship. Didn't have like an outlandish role. He wasn't out there getting sacks or interceptions and big time plays or anything like that. But he was solid, and he did his job, and he wasn't sort of a detriment to what they were trying to get done. So he comes back in, he's looking for that big year-two bump, and he has a head thing. And I think this is sort of the new the new the way the league is turning, where it's the idea that you do the precautionary thing once you've had a concussion, that's relatively new. Uh, IRs for concussion, that's, that's a, a newish thing and a good thing. It'll help you get right. But it's a little bit scary, and again, I'm not diagnosing this guy from afar. You know, it may be who Lord knows what. You know, may not be career threatening in any way. It just might be a precautionary thing. But it is a little bit scary. I would just say, from a former player standpoint, to have rested with a concussion, to come back ready to roll, and to get dinged pretty quickly uh, after return. Uh, presuming again that I've got the sort of. Uh, the, the events there correct because, uh, you know, the information's a little bit murky. But we know that he had a setback. That's usually the phrase we're given. So hopefully the young man's all right. Uh, hopefully his, this doesn't affect sort of his longevity in the league. Nice player. His versatility will be missed, uh, I think, in part because in the absence of Dante Hightower, it's not to say Shane McClellan's Dante Hightower. We do this every time you bring up another player who's going to play more because Dante's gone. But I think the the beauty there is because McClellan can play on the edge, and he does set the edge quite well, and we know that that's been an issue for for some guys on the roster right now. McClellan would be a guy that would come in. You're not going to get high-level pass rush necessarily. You're going to get competent pass rush. You're going to get competent pocket control. Uh, you're going to get a guy that does his assignment every time at a, at a, at a very good level. Uh, but you're you're not going to necessarily be the edge threatener guy, but that's okay. You know, a guy that sets the edge well, a guy that covers his zone well, a guy that covers his man out of the flat well, a guy that does his job each and every time, it tackles pretty well in the in the course of the defense. Those are those are assets. You want those on your team. Um, you know, everyone can't be a star, and, and guys like Shane McClellan, they're, they're really important to have on your roster. So it's, it's a loss. It's an absolute loss because I was one of those people that in the back of my mind was sort of banking on him as an extra depth spot, a, a guy to help sort of smooth out this transition without – Without Dante Hightower. So that's a loss. And, and again, I, I reference Chicago because Chicago was a place where he played both on and off the line. He played back inside at middle linebacker. Uh, he played off the ball. Uh, Shane McClellan on that big, uh, the big sack that Dante Hightower had to, in the Super Bowl, uh, the strip sack of, of Matt Ryan where, where Dante uh, 
uh, Freeman, Dante Freeman. What, I don't know if I guess first name right there, but Freeman, uh, the, the real good scat back that they have there, uh, didn't get his protection well at all. Dante flies right by him. And on that play, uh, McClellan's an off-the-ball guy, sort of faking coming in or out. Uh, and ends up as a dropper. So, you know, he's a guy that can play on the line, can play off. He disguises pretty well. It just seems like, from from the outside anyway, a pretty smart player, a guy that would have been a helpful piece, but they don't have it now. So that's important because you're now asking guys like uh, Kyle Van Noy, who really kind of fits the exact same profile as McClellan, quite frankly. Um, I Because Van Noy was drafted as an on-the-line player in, in, in Detroit, he played some of the Sam stuff, uh, you know, in Detroit's defense, he played, which is over the tight end. He played on the ball. Uh, you know, he did more on-the-ball work. But he's a lighter-bodied dude. He's not like some, you know, terrifying pass rusher. Uh, but he's a good space player, uh, which is probably a little bit different than McClellan. He's, he, I think, is a little – he seems to move better out, out, in, out in the open world there to tackle and play in space. Um, blitzing off the ball good, and we've really seen Van Noy's game grow. I mean, he's probably one of your most improved players on this Patriots team since he walked in the door. Uh, and that's that's been one of the really kind of sneaky, under under underplayed stories of this first half. And that's on me as well. To, to I, The more and more I watch, I realize he's out there every time, and he's got a role in everything. It's never perfect necessarily, but it's, it's, it's very good, and it's gotten to be where he's one of the really more dependable players. But he plays both on and off the ball. So I thought that was important. It would have been a real nice uh, sort of interplay, I guess, with the two of those guys on the field together because either McClellan can be on one snap and then off with you know Van Noy flipping the role, they can kind of go back and forth with one of each other. At least potentially could have. You don't have that now if it's you know David Harris and Alandon Roberts. David Harris and Alandon Roberts, if they're in the game, they're you know over the guards or right over center. They're inside linebackers, either middle linebacker or will linebacker. They're they're box players. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. The difference with McClellan uh, and good at it, both of those guys. It's not to deride their roles. It's their their body types and their skill sets are fit more for for staying in the box. But McClellan and and Van Noy are different. That they can come back in the box. They're not quite the same box players. I wouldn't say as as either David Harris or Landon are. You know, they're just not the thumpers. But they can they can survive in there and and, and be. Be, be adequate players, uh, but they have the, the skill set and the versatility to go outside as well. So you lose one of the versatile pieces, so you're down a guy. So we'll look to guys like Marquise Flowers, uh, who was one of those sort of uh, in-season transactions that, that didn't get a lot of play and has gotten a few reps. Uh, there was one other body that, surprisingly, in, in the last Patriots game, I don't know if, if people out there caught this, but uh, – you know, I'm not going to spend this this podcast uh, trashing Cassius Marsh. He has done some positive things. Last week was not a good week for him. Um, so, you know, it, it looks like his role, unless he had a great bye week, who knows, uh, is probably going to get reduced here a little bit. And that's for edge setting, and you got to set the edge better. It's it's just it's become a consistent problem. But oddly enough, they put this guy Trevor Riley in uh, for just a handful of snaps, and I believe it was after one of the edge busts. Uh, that, that Riley came in. Riley's 6'5", 247, so he's a 6'5", 250 guy, basically my body type. So, you know, watching him play a little bit there and the handful of snaps he got, and he got his chance, and he, he set the edge pretty nice, you know. So, you know, you don't look at him and say, oh, this is some guy who's going to scream off the edge and get 10 sacks, but you look at the guy and say, oh, he's a, a big, sturdy, outside linebacker type, a little heavier than Marsh. Uh, maybe a little stronger at the point of attack. It's sort of the the choice they'll have to make. You know, they don't have McClellan as the guy that could do either, 
But Riley steps in, sets the edge a little bit okay. Not a little bit okay, that's a terrible way to put it, but well, he, he sets the edge, sets a nice edge, and says, oh, okay, you just give the guy four or five snaps, but you know what, maybe we'll give him a little more next time, you know? So don't be surprised if we see number 51 out there a little more than we've seen him thus far. Uh, it's just somebody we don't know a ton about, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on this guy and, and see if his role grows. Uh, the McClellan news might affect that. Uh, Marquise Flowers, another guy that I mentioned earlier uh, that is an athletic, in-space, off-the-ball guy, came over from Cincinnati, has done well in teams, got a handful of snaps. I'm blanking right now and don't have it in front of me, but I think it was maybe three or four weeks ago kind of in the midst of the turning around the defense portion, and they gave him a chunk of game. And we got to see him, and I was like, oh, okay, Marquise Flowers, okay, he can play. You know, guys uh, active, real nice nose for the ball, uh, can do some things. So, uh, again, these are really short snapshot kind of looks, uh, so we don't know exactly where that's all going to go. But the Riley guy, the Marquise Flowers, and, uh, and you know, just using the rest of the rotational stuff and seeing where this goes is kind of where your depth sits right now. And and it is what it is. It's not going to make people jump out of their chairs. You know, people that wanted them to go sign Dwight Freeney or, you know, a more stable defensive end proven guy to go get a bunch of sacks. Uh, they didn't go that route. I think they feel like they've got stability, uh, but maybe not sexiness. And that's, that's fair. And you can still win a lot of games that way. Uh, and it looks like the transition for Trey Flowers to being more of an outside guy because there's some thinness there. Uh, it, that's happened. You know, I think he has to live more outside than being sort of the, the boutique inside guy at the lighter, lighter body type. The, the 260 guy that can slide over the guard. You know, we know Trey can do that, but I think he's going to live outside more now. So you'll see a lot more of Trey Flowers, I guess, in my, my guess or view, uh, as an outside guy because that's where the need is now in the absence of Hightower, which will allow Van Noy to play opposite him, and that's a pretty good one-two punch. That's, that's two good uh, NFL outside linebackers. You, you, you can, you're, you've got a, a top group with that. Now, you're not the top, but a very, very formidable group. Van Noy can do a lot of stuff for you, especially if you put him open side, away from the tight end. That's where he's more free to roam and make plays, rip off the edge, and, and, and be a a chase player in pursuit. Uh, but that's a one-two punch you can feel good about as the Patriots. And that allows you to live inside with, with David Harris and Landon Roberts on sort of a rotational situation. I love it. I think you can win a lot of games with those three. That's a, a, a different versions of those three. And that leaves Marsh as a, as a maybe like a rotational rusher guy, a situational rusher, maybe less of the rundown stuff where he struggled more. And that might be perfect for him. You know, you might you might get back into a role where, okay, to earn my spots, I have to set the edge in the pass uh, in the pass portion now. You know, I can't give up a pocket. And it allows guys to focus in and really hone in on their job. Otherwise, they don't just get reps. So maybe that'll help help sort of turn his year around, and it'll be a good thing for everyone. And like I said, this this Riley guy, Trevor Riley, number 51, could find himself in some edge-setting roles on, on, on rundowns himself. So we'll see where that goes. That was a long-winded uh, sort of version of where the linebacker group is right now. But I think it was important to do because uh, the development with Hightower, he's off IR. Uh, he's, off, he's on IR, excuse me. He's off the roster now. They had to make the move to make room for Ricky Jean Francois. I guess say Francois. There's not a lot of times where I get to have a French name on the uh, on a Patriots roster. So um, I tried to pull that off on, on Nesson this week. And Ricky Jean Francois has a hard time saying the word. Uh, the three names guys always screw me up, so... 
you'll excuse me if I, I butcher that from time to time today. But uh, I, I had a, uh, I, when I saw that name come across the trans- transaction wire the other day, I went, oh, okay, get it, got it, good, understand why they did it. We talked about this on a previous Real Thing podcast, and why I believed there was a need for another big body was sort of this undermentioned notion of uh, maybe a depth issue on the inside. And, you know, I just spent a lot of time on the front of this talking about outside linebacker and linebacker depth overall, and I really thought that they had enough pieces there because the guys are versatile, guys like Van Noy, uh, to pop around and play enough different spots that they would be okay. Uh but the defensive line didn't have that luxury. Lawrence Guy is a big defensive end guy uh, that's you know close to 300 pounds, dude, taller. But he's not like your traditional nose guard in a, in a college defense, or even you know like your Vince Wilfork, or you know the guys that are space eaters that you just can't move, that throw dudes and just you know work over guard center guard, right? Uh, but they didn't have as many of those body types in the roster anymore. Now, Guy can pop down inside and, and do a facsimile of that. But with Malcolm Brown banged up with this ankle and now not practicing the week after bye week, that's a serious thing. You know, when a guy's heavy, a big dude, you know, a, a stud for you sort of as an eater on the inside, I think sometimes those guys have a little harder time if it's a more dramatic uh, ankle injury. You know, you're carrying more weight. There's more stress on that damaged, those damaged ligaments. So whatever it is he's dealing with, it's still ongoing. And there was not a situation like you have in that linebacker room where you can elevate some guy from special teams. Like, there isn't a Marquise Flowers. There isn't, uh, you know, the, the rotational defensive end guy like a Marsh that can maybe have a bigger role or, you know, whatever. Uh, there's not, uh, you know, like a there's no there's no Van Noy of the inside that can play all the positions. You, you kind of have to have beef, and you have to have thicker guys. And and Ricky Jean Francois is a guy. <laughs> I did it again. Got it out. Yeah, baby. Uh, he's a guy that's over 300 pounds. This is an over 300 pound body that's uh, that can live guard center guard. He can rush over guards in in situational stuff. It, obviously, if you're on the street uh, and has played as many years as he is in a vet, you're, it's not like he's going to walk in and give you a bunch of sacks. But he can he can gap control. And I, what I think I like about him and and remember you know seeing him on tape in years past, more so in the Colts years really, is that where he played in uh, in San Francisco when he played here in Indy, he's been exposed to a lot of different kinds of fronts because of the couple different defenses he's played in. So he's been the in the three four and four three both sides of base. Uh, because you know you had to do that in both of those two places, uh, and that's unique. You don't get that everywhere. So the fact that that was his background, and the fact that he's heavy, you know, he's an over 300 pound guy. This is not um, you know a 285 guy, which is closer to your Adam Butler's. He's a different body type, quicker. You know, chase plays down. Uh, Francois, I think, can be a point of attack guy on the inside. Press the guard, shed, make tackles, hit the gap, pocket push. Little different stuff. So. They needed one of those because of the uncertainty with Malcolm Brown and because Vincent Valentine remains on IR. Now, we'd heard a little blurb of news that Vincent Valentine was uh, spending his bye week without traveling. That's a big thing for a player, and it sucks. But if you've been injured and haven't been playing, you got to expect you'll be there. If you've been down, you're not going to an island. <laughs> you know, you're not flying home to Texas or California or Colorado or wherever you happen to live to go see family and have a few booze and nights uh, because you got to stay back in rehab. So we know Vincent Valentine is still doing that, still working. So I think the, the, the unknown, the uncertainty that he might be able to come back is still out there. But the signing of Francois says to me that, well, Malcolm Brown ain't playing this week, and obviously Vincent's not being activated, so you need that body. There just aren't that many heavies left on the roster. You get into goal line situations, 
situations. You get into short yardage run situations. You play a Broncos team that, you know, the passing game's been abysmal, um, and they need to run the football. You need the heavies. you got to have them, especially if they start doing two tight end stuff, living in that, trying to keep Brock Osweiler out of, out of dropback situations over and over again. So you just have to know that that was the body type, I think, that was most needed. You know, it wasn't secondary stuff it wasn't linebackers it's not wide receivers it's not a tight end it's it was there and I think that's what they addressed and it it makes a lot of sense to me if they got the right one I mean we'll find that out I don't know that but in these situations getting a vet that's played the technique and can sort of do it and and call back on upon experience of doing the technique that you want done that's usually a little more dependable than bringing up a rookie off of uh, off a practice squad or something like that and giving him his first shot because you really want stable gap control you know you don't want cj anderson downhill in a hurry or booker downhill in a hurry or some sort of scheme run on the inside where you know a guy's a good player but he just isn't exposed to the to the run run scheme stuff that gets thrown at you uh and denver i think is going to have to throw the whole the whole kitchen sink uh, at, at the patriots to try to generate some offense in that run game and i think francois is is a depth helper in that regard so one last little sort of moment here, you know, because we mentioned Valentine, we got to mention the other potential, which is Malcolm Mitchell, to come back and get involved in this. And I think that excites people uh, because dude had such a great game in the Super Bowl. Uh, he was such a promising player for this team. as a nice rookie year. I believe it was six catches, six or seven catches, something like that in the Super Bowl. was a big part of several drives, has a couple money catches. I'm personally one of the pom-pommers for Malcolm Mitchell, if you've listened to the show, especially early in the year when I was disappointed he went down and I was hopeful he'd come back. Uh, we know that it's a knee that he's dealing with, something that has to, you know, just we have no idea where he's at on this timetable with that. But I think if you were to hold out hope for the one who, guy who could affect, you know, more positively affect where this team might go, to me that is Malcolm Mitchell. And Vincent would be a nice addition, Valentine, to get him back. Uh, but I think because you made the vet move with a big, you're not going to see a demonstrable difference there in the short term. Long term, you want Valentine, obviously. But uh, I think that situation is, is more or less a wash. With Malcolm Mitchell, there's not some guy you're going to go get that's going to be able to do what he can do in this offense if he's healthy. And that matters because some of the wide receiver group has been a little bit banged up people. And I think we all we all kind of understand that with the Patriots, that Danny Amendola is a baller. He is a, he's a clutch player if there ever was one, uh, but he's also a guy that gets hit a lot, uh, you know, because of his small stature, because of his aggressive nature, the way he puts his nose in there. He gets hit. He takes some monster shots. So he's, he's kind of a guy, excuse me, that you kind of hold your breath uh, occasionally to make sure he's going to come out of this okay. So when that's happening, uh, when your, your makeup is, is, a, is, a, is a stud like Danny that you rely upon but that plays a certain style, and Chris Hogan, who's just had a, a productive year, but he's had a banged-up year. You know, he's playing through stuff. He's tough as nails himself. He's lost teeth, uh, but he's got the shoulder, uh, was in a sling at one point, uh, and I'm assuming his availability is back to normal here for uh, – for this next week, hopefully the bye benefited him well. But you know that he's nicked up, and that just that just happens in the NFL. So you know he's a guy that's fighting through things to to sort of stay uh, to stay healthy and stay a productive part. But if for some reason you were ever to lose Hogan for a week, now you're down to basically Brandon Cooks, uh, Philip Dorsett, and uh, Danny. 
and knowing that you know you're a snap away from only having two wide receivers on your roster active, and that can be a little bit a little bit terrifying when you don't have two stable pass catching options at the tight end position. So it's a, it's a stable of backs, one dependable tight end in the pass game, and a receiving core that, that is on the fringe of thinness, but may be okay. You know, you'll see how they come back out of this bye week. So hoping for Malcolm's health. Don't know it yet. He's not been practicing. Uh, I got to speak to him a little bit this last week for. For another issue, I'll tell you guys about more down the line. But uh, he's certainly in good spirits. He's rehabbing. He's getting better. But it's not, you know, there were no indications about when that might be. So I hope the plan is to get him up for this week. But I do not know that. Um, and, or not, excuse me, not this week, but for this season. But he'll be the one where you kind of wait with bated breath and hope they get him back because he's a sharp cut out of breaks guy. He's a guy that can make plays. He can snag it, go get it, toughness, run after the catch, all the things you want. Promising young player for this Patriots team, presuming he's an available player. That's That's been his biggest issue so far. So we'll hope for that one. To at some point turn. It'll be a big difference for this team. Um, now going ahead here, we have to plow into some of the league news, I think, before we get into the Broncos specifically. And normally I would not spend a ton of time on this uh, because we're trying to keep it Patriots focused. This is the Real Thing Patriots podcast. You want to know what's going on with your team. So I usually don't stray too much off that path unless I think it's something that could potentially affect the Patriots. And, you know, it's something where there's a, there were a handful of fights this week, uh, a couple of big fights in the NFL. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to stand here in a soapbox and pretend like I'm some sort of blameless, you know, uh, moral authority on fights. I got a lot of fights, uh, have been ejected from games in college, have been suspended from games in college for fighting. Um, I had, uh, I was held out as a, as a college player, as a captain. I had to go out to the, the coin toss on senior day with my, uh, uh, on a road game, excuse me, it wasn't senior day, it was senior day for another team, but one of our last games, uh, I had to go out the coin toss with my shirt untucked and knowing that I was sitting the first half, uh, you know, for, enforced by my coach because I've gotten in fights. So fighting, yeah, I, I know what it's like to, to not be able to control your temper and to, and to, and to fight that way. I've been that guy. So, uh, and I certainly got a lot of scraps in the NFL and they were a little looser with it back then. So I did never get suspended, but, uh, I like the scrapping nature of the game, and I understand that it's a line you got to be careful with. I think in older age, you kind of see it a little better than I probably did when I was in the midst of it. But for that reason, we I thought it was important to bring this up because I think there was a Cyrus Jones play in his rookie year where he got ejected for sort of a scrap down the field. And um, I think part of this is if there ever is some sort of emotional moment in the game here in the last half, I think it's important to talk about what the baseline is. Why is it important? Where can What can you do? What can you not do to prevent some game-changing penalty, to prevent some sort of game-changing or season-changing availability if a guy gets suspended, and to, quite frankly, bitch here a little bit about the way uh, the enforcement went this this previous weekend. Because I think there are some serious errors here, and this is more of a where the league sits on these issues and what we feel about them in the event, you know, Proceeding any any time where this might you know touch the Patriots in some way or, or another, but the AJ Green fight first and foremost, uh, Cincinnati Bengals star wide receiver AJ Green gets a little scrap with Jalen Ramsey uh, down there with the uh, with the Jags, and uh, this is the fight that I kind of get. Uh, you know, it's two guys fighting within the game. AJ Green kind of puts a hand on Jalen, 
innocently enough it may appear, but after the play, just kind of reaches out and gives them a little touch. It's meant to be sort of a, a screw you. It's meant to be a, you know, there's a mental game to this always. You're always kind of, kind of fucking with the other guy. That's, that's, that's a part of the NFL when you're in this sort of hand to hand, man to man combat with guys. Jalen Ramsey didn't like it. Jalen turned and pushed him and knocked him down. AJ obviously didn't like that. Uh, but this is all post play stuff. But the one thing I will say that's different in this one, relative to the Mike Evans fight we'll talk about here in a second, but is at least this is just right off the edge of the end of a play, and it is two guys that were fighting in that play. Uh, Jalen Ramsey knocks him down, but it was just a shove. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a punch. It wasn't too over the top. I kind of get that as a defensive player. You knock him. You risk a penalty in that moment, and he ends up getting uh, kicked out of the game. They call him an instigator. But a thing that I don't have a problem with what A.J. Green did back to Jalen Ramsey as a man, you know, just as a as as a guy that wants to scrap. I completely get it. A lot of people are like, oh, he grabs Jalen Ramsey from the back. Oh, he, you know, he's, he hits him in the back and body slams him. Well, here's the thing. So in any kind of confrontation here, here's sort of the rules, rules as I understand them, of, of not being a coward and not, you know, being a punk and all those other, the, the words that, People want to throw at people, but more just to what I think is all fair play. Uh, when you push another guy to the ground, you know he's going to be pissed, right? So if you push someone down to the ground, you don't turn your back and walk away because that's basically giving your back to the guy. If you push a guy down, you stand back over the top of him. You confront him because you know something's coming after. If you push him down and turn your back, you can't complain that you got hit in the back because you turned your back to him when you know there's going to be a retaliation. So that you can't claim the, oh, you hit me in the back thing. Jalen can't claim that. You push a guy down, then stand over him, then get in his face. Don't do anything crazy to try to get yourself a flag or, or, or you know, get ejected yourself. But at that moment, if you turn your back, you can't complain that he got me in the back. You turned your back so that you could sort of have that, your back, as protection. That's not how it works. So the, the fact that AJ then body slams him, totally get it. Loss is cool, shouldn't do it, but totally get it. It's not, you know, people are calling him a punk for grabbing him behind he grabbed him from behind because the guy turned his back to you he has to expect some confrontation didn't get it so uh that's that's sort of my spiel on that i think the idea that both guys got ejected in the game that's why they've now not suspended either of the guys it's basically that's your punishment it can hurt a team more because you're part of that day's game plan it can hurt your team more than an actual full game suspension later because in those moments there's time to prepare without you uh, this is sort of an impromptu oh crap we don't have him it could hurt you in game and that can be even more if it's half a game of, a, of an ejection can be more harmful than a full game suspension. So I think that's sort of the rationale behind it, whether or not you agree with it. I mean, I, I, I would say that's certainly debatable, but it, the scrap happened. It is what it is. Uh, AJ Green was, is always sort of seemed to me to be the consummate pro. He stood up, he talked about how, you know, it's, that's not him. Motion's got the best of me. Got to control it better in that situation. If he stands up and pushes him back, he's probably not ejected. If he stands up and just confronts him face to face, but nah, he, he body slammed him and started throwing haymakers. So it is what it is. Um, now on the other one, the reason I thought that was important to distinguish that from the Mike Evans, uh, the Lattimore, the corner, the corner there for the Saints, and Jameis Winston's role and all that, is because this is a different world, and it should have been treated differently, and it, it does bother me a little bit that it was treated almost similarly. You know, the one-game thing. One, rather than one game in-game, it's one game next week. But here's what happens. Now, obviously, uh, there's some sort of thing going on in-game uh, between Lattimore chirping at the sideline, or maybe not chirping, he's getting chirped at, 
by Jameis Winston, the quarterback for Tampa, who's now out of the game at the time, I believe, where he was chirping because he's had his shoulder issue. So Jameis did what, to me, is is as big a punk move as you can do. Uh, you know, or at least it's, I don't know, if maybe punk's not the right word. It's more just that you're if you're going to antagonize a guy, you cannot complain that they come back at you. A guy turned, you know, Lattimore is walking away. He's in the game. He's playing football. Jameis is not. He's out. He's hurt. He's on the sideline, whatever. But Jameis continues to put his finger in the back of Lattimore's head, in the back of his neck, chase after him and poke him in the back. I think at that point, if Lattimore turns around and just decks Jameis Winston, completely, completely okay with me. But I, again, you know, in real life, I'm saying like if this is on a street. You cannot complain if you're poking a man in the back of his head and antagonize him if he turns and hits you. Wouldn't it be a cheap shot? It would be an answer to the antagon- antagonization, is that a word, that, you just, <laughs> that you've done. Now, don't do it. Now, as a patriot, I know you're not supposed to do that. Don't do that. Don't actually turn and deck him. But my point is just sort of natural laws of life here. You can't. Jameis Winston is probably the biggest problem in all this, and it's incredibly unprofessional. You know that you're not seeing any of your your you know any of the quarterbacks you know that are the sort of the top names of this league. Your Brady's, your Rivers, your Wilson, your even Deshaun Watson who's now injured. I'm saying there that there was a level of childishness there that just doesn't fit. You know. Franchise quarterbacks, like you just don't do that. What what Jameis was getting out of that, I don't know. And to me, I think he owes he owes to you know he owes Mike Evans a part of this fine. Now, what Mike Evans does has nothing to do with what Jameis is doing. If Jameis had got turned around and gotten decked, he would have earned it. Uh, you know, Lattimore for for his for, you know, I guess for for his credit to his credit, he didn't turn around and do that. He may give him a little shove, but then Mike Evans comes running off the field. Now again, we're out of the football play here, guys. This is nothing to do with football. This isn't football now at this point. This is uh, post play, not even post play. It's between plays. It's like a transition between plays, and Mike Evans isn't in the middle of engaging Lattimore in any way. But he comes running from way away from the play or way away from where they are at at that point and just decks him in the back of the head. That's different than the green thing in the back of the head. That's back of the head with two people who are actually engaging one another, and one guy just turns his back. This is a guy that had nothing to do with it and just comes flying in there and hits Lattimore right in the back of the head, right in the back, which is a kind of dangerous thing to do. It's why we don't have clipping in the NFL. It's why we don't allow anyone to hit anyone in the back because that's a filthy thing to do because you can't you can't brace. You know, you could you could injure your neck, you can injure your back, you could Lord knows with the concussion stuff, if you just click it right with a helmet to helmet and you you know, shakes your head up, who knows? But the the reason I think this one is so much more so egregious, and I think it's important to put it out that way. I like Mike Evans. I've been a big Mike Evans fan since he came into the league. I think he really uh, propped up Johnny Manziel to make him appear to be a better player than Manziel was because he won so many bad jump balls down the field uh, at Texas A&M. Manziel was a good player in college. I get that. I'm not saying that he wasn't, but I'm saying I thought Mike Evans uh, kept a lot of the, the the blemishes from showing up because he won a lot of downfield balls that your average wide receivers wouldn't. Mike Evans is tough. He's not a punk. He's not a guy who, you know, you're just going to shy away from contact. He's not a guy who's who, who doesn't play with injuries. He's a tough dude. He is. And he is, in his mind, in that moment, you know, protecting his quarterback, whatever. But I think part of it is looking at your quarterback and going, dude, you deserve whatever you get. But that said, he w- it's not like his quarterback was in any real danger. It's not like Lattimore turned and had punched him and then this guy flies in. Uh, what just simply happens is Mike Evans uh, 
you know, lost his head, lost his cool, and flies in and hits a guy right in the back where Lattimore has no idea it's coming. Now, why did I spend so much time on this? Because that is different in the NFL. That is different in sort of the sort of natural laws of fighting. The, you know, what's, what is acceptable and what is not. That's sort of like the gang mentality thing where, you know, someone who's not a part of a fight jumps in and hits someone. That's the dirty stuff, the YouTube video stuff where two guys are going at it and some guy comes flying in from the crowd and, and hits one guy and then that guy ends up losing the fight. I hate that stuff. I think it's filthy and it seems way below who I, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me. Way below who I thought Mike Evans was as a player to person. And he was contrite, and I think one of the biggest things that come out of this is to hear Mike Evans you know, almost sort of embarrassed about what he'd done, owned it immediately, did everything he needed to do, and and I'm okay with that. I heard Jameis James say a word, and he should have come out and said, man, I created all that. That was my problem. I should probably pay Mike's fines you know, because Mike's not going to lose a game. So really, I hurt us. You know, The quarterback there hurt us, and he's going to be injured himself anyway. So Jameis... Is not only injured, but then now he sort of helps precipitate getting his own, uh, you know, star player out of the game as well. I, he hurt their team this week. Now, the reason I again spent so much time on on these two plays is I think there's nothing bigger in the NFL that can control wins and losses than than the player availability. There's nothing. You know, we talk about injuries and whether or not a guy's going to be there and how important that is if I'm going to know if I'm going to do a prediction on a game in December, if I'm going to do a prediction on a game coming up a week from now. Who's playing is the most important thing. And this is, to me, the most ridiculous thing, that you would lose one game in this whole world of player safety and all that other nonsense, where if you did... You know, if you come across the middle, you're Bontez Perfect or whatever. The guy that everyone hates because they think he's dirty. And he's done dirty things. I'm not arguing that he hasn't. He certainly has. He has a history there. But Vontez Perfect uh, playing middle linebacker and blowing up a wide receiver who comes across the middle and, yes, striking his head, incidentally or otherwise, is infinitely less dirty than a guy running from across the field and hitting a guy in the back who doesn't even see him. It's not even close. It's not even in the same universe. So the way people lose their shit about Burfick's hits, you know, like Burfick had the one where uh, the year ago where the tight ends low crosser underneath uh, around the goal line and he's not looking, he's looking back at the quarterback, he's not looking, and Burfick blows his ass up. And, the, you know, it's the whole blindside hit that they're trying to take out of the league. Again, people, at least he's hitting a guy inside a football play, trying to take him out of the play, his job to keep him from catching passes. And yeah, to be physical with him because that's the job, to blow up the other dude so he can't make plays. That is at least parts of football. Uh, you know, the freak out about uh, oh, the, 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 the linebacker for Miami uh, that was, you know, that, that hit uh, Joe Flacco when he was sliding or whatever. Uh, I think that I think I got the names right there. But anyway, whatever. The, the, the point is, you know, the sliding quarterback thing and a, a linebacker or a tackler or a safety, whoever happens to be, flying in and hitting a sliding quarterback. You know, in those moments, yeah, maybe their their helmets hit, and that's pretty highly likely, likely. But they are trying to make a football play. If they're off by a stride and hit them a half count late, these things happen in a blink of an eye. But they are attempts at football. They have nothing to do with that other thing. But we, I'd say collectively, the collective Twitter we, the collective social media we, the collective sort of sports writer we, will jump all over and beg for suspensions and big fines for someone who touches a helmet and 
an instant later than they think they should, or hits a receiver who's being thrown an over-the-middle ball, and, you know, hey, you hit him when he's air-quote defenseless. It is still football, regardless of whether or not they've changed the rules. There's some physical realities and expectations that go on when you throw balls into tight places like that, when you throw anticipatory throws where there are defenders charging in, when you run with the football as a quarterback and there's a bunch of dudes charging to get you down because that's their job, that's football. But people freak out now that, hey, they should get penalties. They should get suspensions. And that shit drives me nuts because, you know what, in those moments it may not be perfect football, but they are trying by and large to play football. And they want to call in those moments for monster fines, teach them a lesson, suspend them for two or three or four games or whatever it would be. But nobody says a word for my, when Mike Evans, uh, you know, you know, it comes flying across in a non-football thing and hits a guy right in the back of the head. Is it because he's an offensive player? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe you only get upset when receivers get hit that way. Maybe we only get upset when quarterbacks get hit that way. Maybe we only get upset when skill position guys get hit in the head because a defensive head obviously works different. Uh, you learn that in science class. But if you play on defense, your brain works different than offense and therefore does not receive or require the same protection. See, I'm being facetious here, but it, it drives me nuts that something like that, so wildly outside the scope of football, and it's not like two men facing each other up and throwing punches. Really don't have much of a problem with that. That is what it is. That's fighting, whatever. You know, that can be a one-game suspension. That can be a fine, whatever. But at least they're doing something real. Flying in from the top rope, cross field, hitting guy in the back. That's got nothing to do with it. That should have been as big a fine as you can find in the world of safety. It should have. There can't be anything bigger than that. You know, hitting the quarterback low, okay, but at least you're still trying to tackle him within the frame of the game. And, but this this idea that that Mike Evans thing is a is a, a bottom of the a bottom of the news blurb, and yeah, he got his one game. Oh well, that is different. If you believe in real safety, you hold that in the highest punishable regard. If you don't, you're full of shit. All right, moving on. A lot of time on that, but we got to get to the Broncos here, and we got 20 good solid minutes here to dive into what's been going on with that team. Obviously, we understand this is not going to have the glitz or glamour of previous Patriots games, Patriots-Broncos games. In the last Patriots game, they went out there and really controlled the situation. It wasn't an explosive offensive day for the Pats, but they won in Denver, sort of took off that kibosh, this notion that they couldn't win out there, really controlled things. I believe defensively only gave up three points on that day. It was a really control-the-clock kind of day, wear them down, suffocate their offense, nothing comes of it. And the Patriots themselves offensively still had a modest output game, but get the win. So now we sit here with a Denver team that has been getting bombed on, quite frankly. You know, I don't I don't I didn't put the numbers in front of me, but I feel like it was something like some outlandish amount of points that they've given up recently. Uh, more just deficit, not overall points. But the 51 of the Eagles was asinine. That's just not something you expect from a Denver defense road home or whatever it may be. Uh, the Raiders, uh, excuse me, um, the uh, the Eagles game was 51. The Chiefs game, they gave up 30, 29 points. So, you know, that's, again, that's, that's sub-Denver sub, that's sub expectation. Denver doesn't expect to give up 30-point games, so they're right on the doorstep there. That's, that's below their standards as well, obviously. They lose to the Chiefs 21 to nothing, but those aren't defensive points. There's, some, there's a punt return for a touchdown in there. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a good defensive performance, but the offense did nothing. They got blank, 21-0. And then back to the Giants game, they lose 23-10. 23 points when your offense has only given up 10 it is reasonable. It's not a bad defensive performance day it's less than what you needed obviously you gotta somehow hold them down while the offense is as inept as it's been 
But that's really where things have been for them. Uh, defensively, you get the sense through that stretch of four losses in a row that it's gotten to be too much. A, a, a not good enough performance against the Giants in that 23-10 loss, but not, not a one that's you know like bad defense day like they had against the Eagles. A good defensive day against the Chargers, but with other things going on in special teams and an absolutely inept offense, you think it just, it just isn't enough. You can't win that way. And the Chiefs are giving up almost 30, and the Eagles, they're giving up a 50-burger. And all of a sudden you say, wow, these, this isn't the Broncos we remember. Uh, now, in saying all that, uh, only one of those four games for the Broncos were at home. And that was the loss of the Giants, a surprising loss, a 23-10 loss out there in uh, the Mile High City. But uh, the three road games you can clear have really worn them down. Uh, So this is sort of one of those total coin flip of a game because you got a wounded animal, you got a very prideful group, you got guys like Aqib Tlaib and Chris Harris and uh, Von Miller and guys that you know can play the game over there, Uh, but things have seemingly spiraled out of control. Uh, so we're going to I want to look here a little more specifically at some of the performances that at least that I think are relevant to what's been going on with them. Uh, you certainly don't want to overlook them, and for whatever, maybe a fan would overlook them, maybe me as an analyst would overlook them or, or underrate them or somehow, it's not happening inside the walls of Patriots' place. Uh, Bill Belichick is building them up as, as the greatest Broncos team he's ever faced. That's how he handles guys. It's how he gets them ready. I don't think you're, there's going to be anyone in that room that overlooks these guys, especially because of the venue they're playing them in. It's difficult to win out there. So you got to take them seriously. So now looking back at this Eagles game, it was a monstrosity for 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 the for the Eagles. Now Osweiler's getting the start. He some of the things I should sort of uh, highlight here uh, is that I, I know there's you say Osweiler's name and bust comes to mind with a lot of people. Uh, that's it's sort of become a running joke about all the money he made in Houston and you know the the way he's been passed around from Houston to Cleveland now back to Denver. It's sort of the you know, tail between your legs, come back home to the place you wouldn't resign with, and now he doesn't look like a very good player there. And so it's it's just a weird sort of life comes at you fast kind of turn of events. But I don't think in sort of joking about that as people are want to do with Osweiler, you should overlook what he does do well because it's not all bad. It's not, and that's it's easy to find on tape. He can do some things, and it's what Coach Belichick, when he was talking about the explosive offense that the that the that the Broncos have, obviously that looks ridiculous to people when they look down and see the the low production they've had. What he means by that, uh, and what I what I sort of glean from it, if I'm in that team meeting room, is they are very poor at producing. Right? They're very poor of stringing together long drives. They're very poor at you know, extending, uh, excuse me, going throughout a game with seven or eight drives where they move down the field 50, 60, 70 yards at a time with six and seven and eight plays. They have not been able to do that. A lot of three and outs, a lot of just inept offense. But what they do have and what Osweiler can do is throw the deep ball. And that's his air quote explosive plays. Latimer, the other, the, the, the wide receiver Latimer for, for the Broncos has been a big part of some of that downfield stuff. We know that Demarius Thomas is capable in that regard. You know that Emmanuel Sanders is capable in that regard. Osweiler's good plays in that Eagles game, although there weren't a ton of them, were slightly broken pocket stuff where he delivers a big ball down the field. Okay, So that's what he can do. So when he's talking about their explosive, he's talking about, yeah, their best plays are explosive plays. Are they explosive on the scoreboard? No. Do they have the, 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 are, is the biggest threat to you 
that they can produce in, in, a, in a world of not very many threats coming from them. The big ball, yes. The big ball is their threat. The big ball, broken play. Osweiler throws it far. One of those three guys, Latimer, Thomas, or Sanders, goes and gets it, and they flip the field. It's the one thing that they've been able to do, and it's a ball that Osweiler throws well. Now, some of the things that prevent me from saying there's any real direct correlation from the Eagles game is because the offense is so dissimilar. Obviously, there's a read element with the quarterback Wentz a lot off that read, you know, making passes. That's not going to translate to anything the Patriots do. Uh, but it should at least mention there are some run scheme stuff that the Eagles do that are the same. So it's kind of like one of those games when I was reviewing it. You say, okay, about a third of this are Patriots relevant. Two-thirds, not so much. So you kind of go find the stuff that works and see if the, see if the Broncos have fixed it. Now, um, one of the, the really, really bad plays uh, for Osweiler that was also to me an indication of where their offense is at and came up against the Eagles, it was when you have quarterbacks who have some mobility with their legs and have a big arm, guys like Osweiler, uh, this is what coaches like to do with them. They don't like to go straight drop back and have them read the entire field. They don't like to have them have to have them, you know, make a make a five uh, a five target read. They like hard sell play action, real run, and the the, the Broncos have not been running the ball well. And C.J. Anderson's a, a very good back, a guy I got a lot of respect for. But they just simply haven't been getting the movement up front and haven't had the consistency in the run game. And that hurts the passing game quite a bit. So if you're looking at things the Patriots have to do, it's stop the run so that there doesn't become this real play action. And they didn't have it against the Eagles, and this leads to one of the worst interceptions you see in the game. And they're, you know, Osweiler had his share. Uh, and it's basically the, the quarterback drops back. Brock Osweiler br- comes back and gives a simple play-action sort of fake here to the back and stands up directly out of the fake and looks back to the backside slant. So he's... It's basically, you know that when they're doing simplified stuff like that, it's a one-read thing. It's not read the whole field. It's go give a really good run fake if you can and stand up right out of the fake and expect that the corner bit and go get it and fit it in there quickly to the cornerback. Well, here's what happens. He goes into the fake. He stands right up out of the read, goes directly to that slant route, and the cornerback was sitting right on it. The cornerback was having nothing of the run fake and had jumped the route already. And, you know, it just tells me that Osweiler is not reading whether or not he should be throwing that to the corner. He's just doing the fake and robotically sending the ball to where his first read was. So that's that's the kind of thing you'll watch for from a Patriots defense. Are they going to be able to jump these early routes? Are they going to be able to take away that first read and force him off play action to go to something that he doesn't want to? You know, there's going to be boot reads. There's I mean, boot meaning you fake to the back and the pocket moves a little bit left or right. Uh, to reset the pocket outside, get everyone moving, and that makes it into a half-field read usually. So you're not reading the whole field again. You're not re- reading all five targets. You're reading maybe two targets, You know, maybe the tight end low and the back out in the flat, or the receiver on, on a crossing route, back out on a check down. Something to that effect. It's meant to simplify things. But when you have just that one or two routes you're reading, if you kind of get the sense with Osweiler a lot that he's not really reading necessarily. He's just going there because he feels like that's where it's supposed to go. So keep an eye on that. Those are really the plays that you can steal, uh, especially when you're not biting on run fakes because the run game hasn't been that good for the Broncos. Um, one of the things that, that – let's see. Let's keep here on top of stuff that, that is relative to 
to Osweiler stuff. Um, the best thing that Osweiler does is, and I have this here in my notes, is sort of a highlight thing because I don't want to overlook it. It's his deep ball off play action. So off play action, throwing a tempo ball, he throws a really nice ball. So that's one of those combine balls. That's one of those practice balls. That's one of those you can see him in training camp. You can see him in maybe a preseason game where things are more simplified and look pretty good. And that, that's where you understand sort of the allure to this guy at some point in his career. He throws a really nice, big, deep ball. And off play action, popping out of it, throwing something big in tempo outside, and you've got these guys that can go get it. He does that well. So you just don't want to see shot plays this week because don't be surprised if Osweiler completes some of those. That is his thing. That's the thing the Patriots are going to have to prevent from him the most. Um, so one of the things that, you know, that's well here we'll just put a bow here on where their offense is entirely that's kind of where things sit uh for me offensively with them they're trying to generate run game with cj anderson they need it desperately it's just hasn't been there real low yard per carry a lot of the the offensive linemen left guard right tackle left tackle some of these guys are a little lighter in the butt uh uh, I don't have the name in front of me here. I should pop it up for you all real quick. Uh, a, a nice young player for the Broncos, left tackle Garrett Bowles. Uh, he's a guy that, as I watch tape, I think they can really power this guy. Light in the butt, first-round pick, top guy, but he's only 297, so he's a lingering around uh uh, a lingering around 300-pound guy. The taller, thinner, athletic tackle, that's sort of the, the 90s and my era, 2000 stuff, uh, Broncos offensive lineman profile. But he gets powered a lot. He's definitely good at squaring guys up. He's that athletic is all hell for that position. Does, you can tell he has the skill set for the position, but he's not got a great anchor. So pressing him into the line, pressing their left guard in the line, pressing over center, uh, even pressing the right tackle, uh, blanking on that dude. Dude's name, uh, what was his? Is it, uh, well, I'm not sure who's going to be out there. It might be Stevenson, number 71 or 75 Watson, but 71, I think I saw a lot of him last week. But either way, pressing both of the tackles, collapsing the pocket that way, not upfield to pass the quarterback. You don't want that with Brock. But that's the way home, and that's the way to sort of it causes negative runs. It causes difficult pocket, uh, pocket formation with these guys because they have a hard time, you know, just getting movement up front. It's just something you see a lot on tape. They lose a lot of one-on-ones from a movement standpoint. So the Broncos offense just isn't what I think they thought it might be. Virgil Green hasn't been a big factor at tight end. A.J. Derby is a is a nice complimentary player that the Patriots lost to out there, but he's not a game changer. I think he's a, a, a nice pro, but you're not game planning to stop A.J. AJ Derby necessarily. So now you're left with some unused assets at the wide receiver position. Demarius Thomas, Manuel Sanders, making all that money and being stuck in an offense that just doesn't get him the ball that well. So it's an offense that just hasn't been performing, just hasn't been doing what you think it might be able to do. Jamal Charles is there and back in, in sort of the, the career revival thing, but hasn't been a monster factor for them, hasn't been a change, change who they are kind of thing. So it's just by and large, an inept offense. It is what it is, and they're looking for answers. Hopefully the Patriots don't give them any. Um, now, defensively, again, I think the hat should be tipped for them in this four weeks for up until last week playing, by and large, pretty good defense. Pretty much what you're used to, scary Denver defense, right? But it relented last week, and it just sort of, I'm not going to say they quit, but it looked like deflated. It looked like they just had had enough, and it kind of the, the house of cards all came crashing down upon them, and they just, 
they just got ran through by the Eagles. Um, now, as far as personnel up there, D'Amato Pecco, you guys will remember him. Pecco's playing nose now for them, one of the interior spots in a four-man line or either over the nose in a three-man. Uh, Pecco's a guy that's a longtime pro, was in there at Cincinnati for years and years and years. More of movement nose than like a big thumper. You know, he's not Vince Wilfork. He's closer to, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the example would be. But he's not a 340, not a 330, not even a 320. He's more of a, a strong like bull, you know, can move, but then also can hold a point of attack. He's a good pro. You should have a ton of respect for that guy. Um, but, you know, there's the edge situation, I think, is where your biggest difference is from from the teams you remember. There is not uh, DeMarcus Ware anymore. Obviously, he's now into retirement. And Shane Ray is on the outside opposite Von Miller. Von Miller's the same guy. Don't overlook that dude. I know there's the funny clip of, of Lane Johnson from the Eagles sort of uh, tossing, tossing – uh, tossing von miller on that that sort of little hump move it was it's funny it was comedy i retweeted it uh you know you see it almost like a cartoon thing or something where von miller goes flying and spinning through the air but uh don't think that that's his whole game i mean he's still disruptive as all as all all he's ever been and he's he's the same guy plenty of disruptive plays even in the eagles game as things are going bad individually he's as good as there still is in the nfl it's just unfortunate the group around him hasn't always played at that level i brought up shane ray he's the guy that you'll see opposite uh, opposite uh, von miller shane ray is a can pass rush absolutely he's disruptive uh but his edge pressing his edge point of attack stuff is a definite weakness for him. Shane Ray is a guy that you can lure up field because he's aggressive as a rusher type to get screen game, to get uh, draws, things like that. He's a guy I think that you can actually go at much more than you ever could DeMarcus where DeMarcus was heavier, a 260-70 guy, a more true defensive end, but that was just so incredibly athletic he could stand up and do both and play outside linebacker. I think Ray is more of the smallish DN type, uh, more of a liability in the run game, but a definite asset as a straight pass rusher. So he's a guy I think you can go at. Eagles really did in several instances, and a lot of those big runs broke because of widening Shane Ray. Not necessarily that he lost the edge like they went around him, but that he doesn't press it well, doesn't close the hole well. So I think that's somebody that Gronk can dig into and move him. I think that's somebody that Nate Solder can move on that right side, left, left side of the offense. I think he's a guy that Dwayne Allen can pick up and move. I think you can get movement against Shane Ray uh, and invite him up the field thinking he's going to sack Brady every time and create gaps between himself and the defensive tackle next to him. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, T.J. Ward no longer there on the back end, so uh, the big physical cor- or, excuse me, safety that hits and, and sort of an energizer for the back end. I think his absence is significant. Darian Stewart's there now, came over from Baltimore. Justin Simmons is a back-end guy that they drafted. Nice young player, Simmons being the strong safety that plays in Ward's old spot. But it's a little bit different feel back there because you don't really have the, the thumper necessarily. You have athletes, but it's a little bit different feel. You still got Tlaib. He's still doing his thing. You still got Chris Harris, and you still got Bradley Roby. So the three corners themselves are the same. But sort of tackling on the back end was a huge thing in the Eagles game. Missed tackles, sort of busts back there. Um, so, again, I think there are, there's, there's vulnerabilities in this unit that hasn't been there in the past when you're watching them on tape. But maybe now when they get back out home and maybe they settle things down and re-sort of configure themselves for a, a Patriots-only game plan, they rise back and play like you expect them to. That's that's. Certainly reasonable. You shouldn't be surprised if that happens. And in those kind of grinder games, it's just a matter of, 
you know, maybe you're looking at a low to mid twenties output for the Patriots, and you're looking at a can they even get ten with with the Broncos offense? That's that's the kind of game that we all shouldn't be surprised if it happens. Now let's dive into some particulars with that defense. Uh, I think they they have been. Um, let's see, they've been. I don't know how to best say this without trying to be too too hot take, you know, too sort of dismissive of these guys. They made mistakes on the back end with tackling, and a lot of it sort of has a circus feel to it. They run into one another. They, you know, they, 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 you bring a guy in motion, which the Eagles did a lot, sort of the jet sweep or reverse fake stuff, and all of a sudden you're, you know, one Reggie Roby's banging into the safety, both guys fall to the ground, and the big run breaks. Uh, they're, they're motioning over a guy, and the guy in man is following him, and he hits the linebacker and rubs him off on the way. Uh, there's just a little bit of a roughness that you see in Vance Joseph's group. Remember, he's the, the new head coach there. Uh, Joseph comes over from Miami. Uh, I just don't think this defense looks like I remember it uh, under the previous regime. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. It's a little bit more ragged, a little less disciplined looking. Uh, and maybe part of that is just because we're, I'm seeing them more in recent weeks where it seems like, you know, enough has just become enough and the performance is suffering. And there may, may very well have been times in the year where Vance Joseph's had them playing at their old their old level. But you get what you get on this week, and I think that the, there is some vulnerability there in the ways that they execute their defense, some holes in the defense that you're not used to seeing that the Eagles exposed, and you will wonder if the Patriots can get after. So, as we always do on this show, that's kind of sort of your big review of the offense and defense. We should, well, I should Before I dive into the next thing, I should touch on the special teams. This is a huge point, especially with that Chargers game going down where the punt return was such a huge part of the game. Touchdown by Travis Benjamin, another huge return by him. Multiple big returns. Broncos themselves had a big return against the Eagles. Um, the McKenzie kid, I think, is the guy's name. Uh, young, explosive kid, but it was blocked really well as well. So I, I, think, uh, I, I think don't be surprised, especially out there with McMahon, Man is hitting bombs as the kicker, a guy that can reach from 55 really easily, uh, and and punt return and punt coverage games that I think they show some vulnerabilities on both sides. So um, that don't be surprised if that's a big part of the game. Going and finding uh, punt return production for the Patriots is something they've done well, and I think they'll have some field field flipping opportunities in this one. Those are always fun out there in, in the air in the thin air. I know that from experience, just because the ball flies more which means more return opportunities, bigger hang time, longer kicks, longer time that the blockers have to maintain things, and, uh, you know, just chances, chances. So don't be surprised if that's a big part of what the Patriots get done. The, the special teams unit has been flying high here for several weeks. I think they're a big plus in this game and should be an advantage there against the Broncos. Now, as we always do, we're going to end the show here with what should actually be, to me, the most compelling, the best part of this show, this particular show. And we're bringing my buddy, Matt McChesney. Matt McChesney is as, as unique a dude as you will find in the NFL. Uh, he's a former player, played for uh, several years. I hope I've got it right, five, six-ish years, somewhere in that range. But I knew Matt McChesney as he came into the NFL uh, as a teammate of mine with the Jets. And McChesney was actually a dude... Uh, that played on the defensive line initially uh, with us in New York, and then they flipped him back over to the offensive line. A little bit like Steve Neal. Steve Neal was sort of, what are we going to do with this guy? He doesn't have a big background. Let's see if he can play D-line. That didn't last long. Okay, now he's a, a stud right guard in the NFL. Now McChesney, you know, he's a, he's a proud, you know, he was a, he was a good 
big-time college football player, not unlike Steve, who just was a, who had wrestled, hadn't played college football. McChesney played at Colorado, big CU guy, buff guy from out there, uh, but then comes into the NFL sort of looking for a position, an undrafted guy, how are we going to find a spot for this dude, and uh, really was a tough guy. You want to talk about guys that would scrap in practice, a guy that would be there for a fight from all of our earlier conversation. McChesney is one of those dudes, and McChesney now runs something uh, that is as unique as any player, you know, any former player out there. It's called 6-0 strength. 6-0-60, that was Matt's number in the NFL. He obviously played with us for the Jets for a stint, went down to Miami for a bit, and then ended his career out in Denver. And obviously with himself uh, being a buff and being from the local area and now settling down there, he does uh, radio out there uh, in... In, uh, in the Denver area, and it's called the Orange Blue 760. I hope I got that right. Orange Blue 760 at 760 AM. This is 103.5 on HD. If you're trying, and it's an iHeartRadio thing, you can, there's a number of ways to hear Matt's show. Matt's a radio guy. They're out there uh, uh, covering, these, covering these Broncos. So he's got that sort of media angle to his life as a well-respected dude out there in that community. He played there in college and the pros. But he's also got this six zero strength thing uh, that I mentioned earlier. And that's this sort of training, the Dungeon Family, hashtag Dungeon Family. You can always find him out there on Twitter, a very active guy, huge account, 70,000, 80,000 Twitter followers, something like that. But Matt has become one of the preeminent combine prep guys for the NFL or high school prep for college guys really out there in sort of that western region. Guys, uh, coaches from all over the country, college coaches from all over the country, recruiters flock out there to come see this gabble of dudes that Matt has working out at this gym he's got in the Denver area. It's pretty sick. Uh, you go out there, go online, check out uh, 60strength.com and see all that this stuff this guy has going. His endorsement of young players, his development of young players, getting them ready for big-time college football, and then his ability to take some of these college guys back and prep them for what he went through himself to get ready for NFL combines and draftings and all that kind of thing. It's become uh, kind of the go-to spot out there. And I even know that my University of South Dakota Coyotes had made a trip or two, uh, you know, send recruiters out there, uh, guys from our FCS level, going out to, to try to swoop up some of the good athletes that, that, that are – there's a wealth of them out there in that Denver area, but they sometimes don't get the shine, and Matt has brought it to them and taught them how to do work. It's a great thing. So enough of my blabbering. Let's get into Matt McChesney here, as promised. And as promised, here's Matthew McChesney. Matt, what's going on, buddy? How you doing? How you doing, brothers? Damn good to talk to you. It's been too long. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, uh, you know, on the bump here, as we were bringing you in, I, I tried to pump you up as much on the on the six zero strength stuff. It's so unique for a player to get involved in that, and your your thing out there has really blown up. Try to explain it here to our listeners a little better than I could. What exactly you got going on out there? Well, you know, I'm from Colorado, and uh, I got a big plan. My six years in the NFL and playing both ways, both offense and defense. I got back here and I looked around the state and I really tried to evaluate what we're not doing well. And, you know, football from the, from the mental standpoint, as you get older and as you play more, it all becomes what you know and what you don't know and what you can communicate and articulate and then get across to your teammates. And that's severely lacking here in Colorado. And then from an opportunity standpoint, a lot of these kids are really good football players and they never get seen because Colorado has been a flyover state for recruiting for so long. So we've tried to be a bridge at 6-0 to 
for the mental side of the game. And then from a technique standpoint, we teach football in here every day, whether it's quarterback work with Steve Fairchild, who was a college football head coach for a long time, or DB and linebacker work with uh, guys like Clyde Sorrell, who I played with at CU, or Andre Davis, who's a 12-year NFL veteran at linebacker, Chad Brown, who I know you played with up in New England. So yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we we try and, and, and level the playing field for kids in Colorado that are maybe a little bit overlooked, and uh, and it's been working out well. We've put over 400 kids in college in the last seven years, and you know we, we've got a room full of competitive athletes, and things are going really good. And then from a combine and pro day standpoint, you know, you know this as well as I do, but running a 40 and a 5.10.5 and an L drill is sexy and it's nice and I'm glad you can do it. But when it comes down to it, if you can play football and you can communicate and study the right way, you're going to play for a long time. So I'm trying to change the trend of if you're a good player and you go to speed camp for four months, what exactly is that getting you prepared for? Are you a track star? You know, so it's it's been an uphill battle there's a lot of people that are resistant to change but you know me i'm a pretty stubborn guy so i'm going to keep pounding that drum i love it stubborn is good and especially hey, in man. this particular game you believe in it you're going to you're going to fire after it so one of the things here that uh, was really nice that this this sort of worked out that that uh, the Broncos were on the schedule and I could reach out to you. And I know you cover the team there as well out there on the radio. And that's, to me, uh, kind of an interesting – like if I was sort of going through the, the list, and we do this each and every week with a former player that, that is in the opposing market, and I would have predicted what I thought our conversation would go like two months ago – this was like the circled game on the schedule. This is like, you know, one of the Patriots top one, two, three kind of contest national thing. Everyone's going to be watching. Both teams will be, you know, near the top of the AFC. It isn't like that right now. And it's a little disappointing just from a, you know, even if you want to be like a, a an objective bystander here, not either rooting interest, there's a little less juice going into this one. Uh, but I also kind of look at Denver like a wounded animal. Can you kind of, that it could be potentially very dangerous because of the bad stretch they've had. And now uh, an opponent like, uh, opponent like, the Patriots that can kind of get you fired up and ready to go again. So kind of bring us up to speed on what's going on uh, down on the ground there with the Broncos and the the struggles that they've had. I mean, it's been bad. The offensive line play has been atrocious at times and it's been hard to watch, but I I feel like they're, they have some games where they're very consistent and they're throttling people on the line of scrimmage. And then some games where they can't get out of their own way. The quarterback's position here uh, in Denver I believe that it's unacceptable to be average in the Mile High City at the quarterback position, and they are or below average these days with Simeon. And Osweiler, there's a lot of mistakes being made because they're pressing. Um, it's disappointing that they're 3-5, and five, you know. When they started 3-1, and one, they throttled the Cowboys. They went into the bye week and had a lot of momentum, I felt. They came out, laid an egg against the Giants on national TV, which is their only win this year, and they looked terrible. Uh, they got shut out by the L.A. Chargers and what was a home game for them. I mean, the entire stadium, the soccer stadium there in L.A. and Carson, California, was all orange and blue, and they got just absolutely dismantled. And then the Kansas City game was five turnovers, very frustrating. They outgained Kansas City by 200 yards and controlled the time possession, and defense played really well. And they kind of all just accumulated into this big turd sandwich last week that we saw them play in Philadelphia and that was an enigma, in my opinion, because I've never seen this Bronco defense, the, the one that's been 
built by Mr. Elway and, and Joe Ellis and Matt Russell here in Denver. I've never seen them get throttled like that before. So hopefully that wasn't a blueprint on how to beat them because I know Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and Josh McDaniels, after playing for Josh out here with the Broncos, yeah. I know that they find weaknesses and they exploit them until you say, until you show you can stop it. And then they also try and take away your best threat. So if that's what's going to happen this weekend, I think that the Patriots have a big time advantage here. But then again, this is Patriots Broncos. So it's like Patriots Jets for me. You throw the records out the window and see what happens because there's so much just, there's so much real hatred here for, for each other on the field. So I know Tom Brady doesn't really like mile high. It's going to be cold on Sunday night. The yep. Broncos' backs are literally against the wall here. If they don't find a way to be ultra-competitive in this game, I don't think they necessarily need to win. I mean, I know that everybody's saying it's a must-win, but I think it's a must-show. They need right. to show up and show that they can go into the second half of their schedule here because they have Cincinnati at home. They go on the road at Oakland, at Miami. They have the Jets at home, and then they're on the road against the Colts. That's five winnable games, in my opinion. It puts you at 8-6, even if they lose to New England. So they're still in the hunt. They need to go out and perform well so they get their confidence back up. And then anything can happen in a rivalry game like this. So, you know, the, the Patriots have their own struggles that they're trying to overcome, and they seem to be overcoming those. The 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 – the biggest difference here is you guys have the GOAT. You guys have Tom Brady. And he, I mean, what he does at the quarterback position, I don't know if it can ever be quantified. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if it can ever be truly, I don't know if it can ever be truly appreciated the way that I watch him and go, wow, this guy is amazing. It's just right. mentally he's so much more engaged than everybody else. He sees everything so fast. He's always putting his guys in position to be successful. He makes everybody so much better all over the field from the center and guards and tackles to the tight ends to the receivers. He's in total control all the time. So the Broncos, if they walk out and they run their you know odd front base or their over-under combos and their defensive line and then they play cover one and they just try and man everybody up the whole game, if they don't try and scheme a little bit to try and confuse 12, he is going to chop them up the way Carson Wentz did last week. From a personnel perspective, the Broncos can run with anybody. I'm very interested to see what Joe Woods and Vance Joseph do this week to try and confuse the Patriots a little bit and maybe show, you know, show them a, a, a Tampa 2 robber look and then go man coverage. I don't know. They've got to do something to right. try and confuse 12 and try and get some turnovers and, and put him in a position where he's coming back, trying to lead so your pass rushers can pass rush and the the advantages that you have at mile high can truly be advantages because right now they're they're behind in every game and they can never really utilize what they are on defense. Right. It's interesting that, uh, you know, you talk about Josh's sort of uh, history of trying to look for a weakness, Bill himself, the way that 12 can just kind of find what it is, scheme to go find it. Uh, the one thing that, that popped up to me in, in film study, and I'll be honest, I, the only two games I'd watched is I watched San Diego and then I watched the Eagles game. And as I was watching the Eagles game, it's kind of one of those deals we used to do in New York. 
Maddie, we would just sort of, you kind of filter. You kind of say, okay, what we're watching this opponent, but what portions of this game are relative to our team? Because Carson right. Wentz is running a read option element. Uh, so those plays, the third of his, you got to eject those. New England can't replicate yeah. that. So they got their own deal. But one thing I saw on tape that I was like, oh, this is what to me is, it's not a huge deal. It's not as if there's a monster drop-off between the player, but it's different. DeMarcus Ware now not being there and Shane Ray being there, it's a different kind of player. And I saw the Eagles go at Ray a little bit, you know, OT stuff on the edge, just the tight end sort of widening him, taking advantage of his aggressiveness up the field. And now it seems like, at least in a handful of the most recent games, teams wanting to stay left and stay the hell away from Von Miller because he's still the monster he's always been. But they found some vulnerability there, look to me. And it's always interesting to me if the Patriots will go back out and try to run the football first. Because what makes life easier for 12 is if they've got that going for them. And it's been hit or miss throughout this season. But uh, is there something that you've noticed differently with Vance Joseph now being in town relative to Wade Phillips? Is there a scheme difference necessarily? Or is it just a couple different uh, you know, personnel changes? Ray being there, TJ Ward being gone, things like that. Yeah, look, Shane Ray's coming off of a wrist injury that was pretty catastrophic and probably would have IR'd most guys. Gotcha. Playing with a cast on his hand, so he's only been on the field for two weeks, and he's, he's acclimating slowly. I think he's pretty frustrated about it. He's frustrated about the way the defense is playing. But I think he'll get back, and he'll be a huge asset for Denver moving forward. Losing a guy like DeMarcus Ware and all of his experience and everything that he did for this football team, not only just being there and being 94, first out Hall of Famer, but also what he did with Von Miller mm. and helping Von mature into the player he is and the leader he is now is it, something you can't quantify. It's very similar to what Tom Brady does. So right. losing a guy like that, you lose more than just sacks and pressure. You lose leadership. You lose a guy that can stand up in the meeting room and calm everyone down. So Shane Ray is a, is a live wire, and he can help, but he's also got to be able to control his emotions, you know, and and play as hard as possible without getting down on himself, going with the ebb and flow of the game. You can't win every rep. So right. as far as Vance Joseph and Joe Woods go, I think that the lack of creativity, in my opinion, and the defensive scheme is what's getting them beat uh, a little bit. I think that they've relied on the fact, and they're both great coaches, and they know more than I do, but I think they've relied on the fact that they're so good across the board. Chris Harris, Tlaib, Roby, Stewart, Brandon Marshall, Derek Wolf, they've got matchups all over the field that you would take individually, but they're not confusing people. They're just lining up and saying, well, if you're better than us, you can beat us. And now people like Philadelphia did last week, like the Chargers did, like the Chiefs did, they're just game planning the hell out of the Broncos and making life miserable on them by running a bunch of man beaters, by using picks and formation. Oops, Maddie, did we lose you? A lot of things that need to be improved on there, but I think that they'll get it figured out because if they don't, if you thought 51 points to Philadelphia was ugly, don't let the goat get running because he'll hang 70 points on you and smile. 
For sure. Now, the one last sort of thought here. I know both <laughs> both you and smile the whole way through it. Uh, yeah, it's, man. It's, it's, we've seen it from the other side, and I've seen it as a teammate. Uh, he's fired up and refreshed and ready to go, even though he's 40. I think this is probably one of the more incredible stories you'll ever see in football. I see the guy you know, regularly, and I'm just amazed because we're the same age. Our birthdays are within a couple of days of each other. Came into the league the same year, and uh, it just I look at him and I shake my head. I'm like, how the hell are you still doing this? And by the way, I'm not willing to adopt I'm not willing to adopt Giselle's, this diet. <laughs> Giselle's massages must be just off the hook because <laughs> there you go. There you go. something's happening in the Brady household that's right. There you go. So one last kind of final thought, and I think this is important because you played off offensive line in the NFL, and it's something that was, you know, the Patriots won 16-3 last time they went to mile high. It was a great day for the yeah. Patriots' defense. Offense, mild output. They're never happy, win or lose, if they only put up 16. So that was still a good effort by the the Broncos' defense. The offense was non-existent. Um, one of the things that has been a recent issue, and I think a lot of teams probably face this when you play in mile high, is Vaughn jumping the snap. And it was used to be where as well, and it's not something I – it's not legal. It's If you can get away with it, God bless you. And Vaughn is so good at timing that thing. And just and there was one against Lane Johnson last week. I think it ended up in a strip sack of, uh, of Foles. But that dude was – the offensive tackle had no chance. I think it was Lane Johnson. Had no chance. He was, he was a step past him before he was out of his stance and just hit it. It was probably a little offsides, but it was awful close. Can you talk from sort of an offensive line standpoint on when you got guys on the edge, we'll even include Ray in that, but that do a pretty good job of timing and a pretty good job of, of doing that in their own home where you can sort of create noise and force them to go on silence and things like that. What can an offensive line do? to try to mitigate that problem at the center position with the quarterback changing counts. How does that work for you guys? Well, look, mile high is going to be rocking on Sunday night. So they're going to have to run a ton of silent count in my opinion. And the more that they can get Vaughn on his toes, you know, and, and aggressive, the better in my opinion, because you know that they're going to change snap count. You know that they're going to do everything possible to put their tackles in position to be successful so that means that, you know, sometimes you got to change snap count. you got to go on silent count. They need to do a lot of motions and chipping, maybe start on an open side where he thinks you've got a, an open rush on, as a five technique, and then all of a sudden you're motioning Gronkowski over there, you're motioning Devlin over there, and you're making it terrible on him because he has to widen out and the distance is further. So they have to game plan a way to stop Von Miller. And then also – a lot of this is on Shane Ray and Shaq Barrett because if they don't show up, you can you can handle Vaughn getting one sack and a couple pressures and four or five tackles. You can live with that. What you can't live with is two sacks, a forced fumble that turns into a touchdown, right. three TFLs and constant pressure. The only way that happens, Matt, is if Shane Ray and Shaq Barrett show up because then you can't double-team them. Right. You can't slide to them every play. You've got to be more creative in your – in your protection schemes. And look, I rush the passer a little bit in my life and I protect the passer a little bit in my life playing both ways. So if you can get a jump as a defensive lineman, as a pass rusher, and you know what the cadence is and you feel like you have that advantage, it's over. The offensive line can't do anything. Right. So I, I would expect to see a lot of draw and a lot of screen, especially if they watch the Philadelphia game. And I agree, the yep. zone read stuff is out. But the way they screened and the way they drawed the, the Broncos uh, on Sunday, Philadelphia, that is, was outstanding. I mean, I, I saw a play where Lane Johnson's stat 
and left hooked Von Miller so hard that he <laughs> yes. dropped him. I mean, it looked like it was like off Mike Tyson's punch out, bro. Yeah, it's a video game. He knocked, exactly. He knocked the hell out of him. So, <laughs> and Von was going straight up the field thinking it was a pass, and it was a great draw set by Lane and a really good strike by him, very powerful. So, that I think that's what they need to do to be successful. And the Broncos, in turn, have got to play as hard as humanly possible to make up for some of the things that Tom Brady's going to exploit, regardless of how good you are. He's going to get his. So, yeah. you know, I'd like to see the Broncos not, not give up more than 24. But with that offense and the problems that they're having and the lack of protection and Mel Leak Watson, the right tackle for the Broncos, yeah. went on IR this morning. So they're going to be playing either Allen Barber or this, this Cujo kid they just signed from Alabama who hasn't played yet this year. This year. So there's some uh, there's some problems in Denver on the offensive line and the quarterback position, and if they don't solve those, I don't think it really matters what your what your defense does, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Maddie, thank you so much for coming on. You had some awesome insight today, uh, and just you know, best of luck out there. As I always tell you, each time we get a talk, I'm a little bit jealous. I love it out there in the mountains. New England's great. I'm not complaining. I love our seasons out here, but I do miss the uh, the Rocky Mountains. So best of luck to you, pal. Keep kicking ass there with 6-0, and uh, we'll talk at you again. You know it, brother. Stay up, Chatham. See you around. That was great stuff there by Matt McChesney. Uh, you know, sort of teased him a little bit off the front and talked about sort of his unusual path to the NFL and role once he was in. He mentioned himself as a two-way player. He was. You don't see that very often, a guy that uh, had a value to, to stick on rosters because he could flip over if need be, and he kept earning earning jobs each year because of uh, his ability to really see both sides and do both sides, sort of a unique body type that he was, you know, comfortable in sort of a guard's body, but he could go play tackle too, and you don't often find that in the NFL. So he gives great perspective because he can see both sides, and he trains athletes too and teaches the techniques. He's a guy that just really sees the whole picture. Love Matt McChesney, and I uh, was really happy he was able to come on and give us some great stuff there. So it's a kind of party shots idea here as, as we leave this thing, uh, taking some of what Matt uh, brought to us and then incorporating some of my own thoughts from study. I want to talk about where I think this offense needs to go. Really big picture, uh, although I think the big picture also encompasses what you'll need to see this weekend in the Sunday night game against the Broncos. Uh, so we'll do that really here for both sides of the ball. And offensively, I think it's extremely important against this particular defense that you don't just concede a non-run game. You need to run the football, and that sounds passe. I know it sounds like sort of some sort of, sort of 90s football endorsement, but it's a very real thing. Uh, and you watch some of these games, where the Broncos had had more uh, luck, had keep had, had kept the other opposing offenses down as their own offense struggled, they get it from three and outs. They get it from putting you in third and eight, nine and ten. Uh, they don't perform nearly as well when you get chunks on first down, when second is an advancement, not an incompletion that leaves you at third and medium. So I really think that's a defense that you cannot concede the point, something that I think that has happened in years past against that group. Uh, you know, feeding the ball to Gronk incessantly, you know, over and over and over and over again, and not really having much of a run game to speak of, uh, you know, becoming too dependent on one or two or three things in the offense. I think the Patriots set in a really good position relative to the number of times they've seen this defense to be very balanced, to go in and really pound the rock. They got the bodies to do it. I think they have some offensive line versus their front advantages that sometimes haven't been there in the past. Uh, so I'm, I'm anxious to see that happen. And so as a big picture thought on that run game thing, I think the, the thing we'll all be here kind of watching as this thing finishes out the second half 
half of the season is uh, which of the which is the guy from that group uh, a really strong group with Gillisley with Deion Lewis with James White and with Rex Burkhead which is the guy from that group that's going to separate themselves it's going to potentially be a bell cow and I don't think there's a there's never going to be a bell cow in the in the traditional sense of the of the term you know like talking 25 carries or even 20 carries in this group but who's going to be the consistent 12 to 15 carry guy because uh, there probably will be one of those and, and I think the guy that invariably wins that particular role is the guy that gets three or four yards every time the non-negative run guy the guy that when the the blocking isn't perfect in front of him doesn't get a zero doesn't get a one uh the guy with the patience to stay back gas fall forward and you know the fall forward that's an important term there always on contact gets that one yard beyond contact or more uh and that guy has to has to sort of you know, pull out of this group because I'm not exactly certain as I speak to you right now who that might be. Uh, Rex Burkhead has a great opportunity. I'm surprised his, his touch rate was actually so high a week ago. Uh, actually, more touches than James White had. Although James had a couple, James had a couple explosive plays. Ends up with a higher net total. Uh, you know, runs and pass, but as, as far as yards. But uh, I'm a little interested to see if going into this, if you're not necessarily short yardage, but your game plan to get three or four guy. Uh, it starts to either be Gillisley or uh, or or Rex Burkhead. Does Rex get a shot here at that job with a, a, a you know a run a carry rate over ten? You know, does that become a thing, or does Gillisley start to take this thing by the horns and become the the back we thought he was going to be as sort of a replacement to Blunt in some of those tougher spots? I don't know what it's going to be, and we all know. Enough not to count Deion Lewis out. He is as plucky as they come. He's strong. He's tough. Um, but he is the more dramatic cut guy. So um, more apt, I think, to take a negative, negative play occasionally to try to spin out his stuff. Um, but I wonder, in, in a competitive room like that, who among the group you know, becomes more resolved to be the fall forward dude, to be the guy that can count on in that situation and earn themselves some more reps. But it's yet to be seen, but it's an exciting group. I think all three can potentially do it. How it will separate, we do not yet know. And obviously there, I did not mention James White. I think independent of all those things, James will always have a role because he's so valuable in the passing game and uh, just slick enough, just strong enough, tough enough and savvy enough inside the tackles to still get your, you know, five, six to seven carries a game in sort of gun running kind of situation. Situations. But he'll always have a role, in my view, from that from that foursome. Uh, but what happens with the other three? I think that's that's a float, and we'll find out week to week. But needs to be there when you get to playoff time or some of these more important. Uh, well, they're all important, but you know the big games down the stretch. Uh, having this portion of the game to fall back upon and not just relying upon draw plays, not just relying upon screens to do sort of a, a version of a run game, but being able to line up, having a fullback, maybe trading a tight end, motion a receiver or something like that to flip the point of attack side, but doing traditional runs and getting them. They got the fullback, you carried him, you carry all the backs, you have to run the football. And uh, I think that's going to be very important down the stretch. Something that was good for the Patriots a year ago, uh, but then petered out a little bit down the stretch, especially in that first half of the Super Bowl. Now I look at the rest of the offense, the thing I'm going to be looking for very much in this Denver game, especially because as we're recording this show anyhow, we're not entirely certain that that, uh, Chris Hogan is going to be a part of this. It's relatively unlikely that he will and even if he were to be out there we know he's banged up a little bit so I think this is a perfect week something I've been advocating for for a while to expand the Brandon Cooks package right and and that simply means game planning plays for him it's not just run the route see if he's open have Tom concentrate on more and more within the reads I think it's less that and more the game plan plays it's back to my old Antonio Brown 
analogy, but the way they get Antonio the ball isn't just Ben dropping back and trying to find him. It's plays where it's supposed to go to him, you know, screens, um, you know, flopping him in motions or building him into bunches at places where it makes it more difficult for the rest of the group to snatch him. You basically are designing plays for him. It's almost like, uh, you know, like a like an elite scorer that you have might at the NBA level, and you're setting a lot of picks for him, right? Or you're setting you're you're building plays off of a couple uh, of a couple screens to get the guy open, just to get the damn thing in his hand. I really think he has that kind of value, and especially getting him some short carry stuff, some you know quick screens or or look passes or slants or quick outs to help bring the coverage down so we can open it up over the top of him. I'm personally here, especially with a roster with a lot of beat-up other guys, and with Hogan and with Danny uh, just being tough and playing through everything. But you never know what this team is going to be down the road as far as their depth. Philip Dorsett's got an incredible opportunity ahead of him, but I say that with that sort of your pool of guys. Getting Cooks to where he can be a consistent 8 to maybe even 12 target game a guy, uh, game guy yeah <laughs> i say that right a game guy uh is is where i hope this thing goes and i think in the event that they're there and they still got gronk tearing people up up the middle and inside uh, and they've got the running game going and then you have your sticks guys and other big play elements and those other three receiver dudes and maybe malcolm mitchell down the road too is an extra present this offense can be disgusting so they got a ways to go we'll be watching that portion as far as the offense now um you know i should mention this and i think we're going to now see this is a prediction as much as anything not meant to be a hot take just more sort of an understanding of the flow of the season in my view and that Gronk who's been modestly involved to the first half but that hits the second half coming off a bye healthy I think that's I think that's purposeful I don't I think there's a reason you haven't seen 10 and 12 target games from Gronk week in week out for eight straight weeks to start this thing you know not kind of the ones he he was an active but I think there's a reason for that, and I think it's going to be a slow build, and I think there are going to be games where he'll be back to being a 10 or 12 target guy. He can be back to being an extended, isolated guy with in and out breaking things, not just back shoulders and fades and stuff like that. I think he can go back to being there, but I think it's a managed situation to this point. Uh, so I want to see the, the gronk, 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 you know, just simply uh, loading that guy up as it builds. Now, that might just mean simply ticker ticking on an additional target a week from a four five guy to a five six guy to a six seven guy to a seven eight guy to eventually where he can be close to a ten as well. You never want to get to a situation where you've got two guys on the roster uh at or as plus ten target guys because then you little look a, a little bit overly dependent. But in the weeks where Gronk's a ten plus, great. You know, Cooks obviously probably isn't. In the weeks where Cooks is, yeah, Gronk probably isn't as well. It'll still need to be a spread the wealth off wealth offense. But in those moments where it's not a big Cooks game, I think Gronk has to be your one two punch and he's as dangerous as ever and healthy. And that should be an exciting thing if you are a Patriots fan. Now look to the defensive side. And this is again sort of Denver relevant but I think something you can extrapolate and uh, and stretch this over the top of the rest of the season because there's a lot of uncertainty out there with the kind of things they'll see. Uh, defending the run schemes, and not just run schemes, but scheme runs. Matt uh, McChesney was on here as our guest earlier. He alluded to this. He used that phrase a couple times. And just for clarity's purpose out there for people who don't have a background, 
in the game of football. A scheme run simply men, means you're doing something purposeful to try to trick the other side, to try to pull one offensive lineman from one side and overload him to the other, uh, to create a numbers advantage, to pull one lineman in one direction and have the flow of the play go the opposite of it, to try to trick them and get linebackers or safeties or whatever to step with the, the lineman that's giving the false key, uh, you know, to, to build the formation one side and then pull someone back to the weak side and, and run away from where it looks pre-snap like the ball's supposed to go. Uh, running into bunches, you know, creating little stacks with wide receivers and then using those edge guys who are pretty good blockers on this team, actually really good. Your you're, you're, you're Chris Hogan's and Danny Amendola is not the biggest guy, but he's more than willing and does a good job of stock blocking out there. Gronk has an extended blocks really well. Dwayne Allen, I know he hasn't had a big pass role, but the guy flexing and hooking a corner or, or drive blocking as these these lighter outside linebackers it's something they can definitely do so you know how did I get off how did I get off script there because I started talking about how the offense does the scheme runs I use that as an example though I, I, I put myself backwards there but what I mean here is is defensively defending those kinds of things uh, those are examples of how the Patriots would do it but what the defense I think is going to see more of is those kinds of goofy runs where it's meant to trick the Patriots defense meant to sort of uh, create some sort of confusion, left, right, or otherwise. So, uh, And how are they going to handle those? I think that's a very important question because you look at who's on the schedule. You look at Denver. You look at Buffalo still twice. You look at Oakland. You look at Pittsburgh. You look at even Miami potentially as a team that we kind of don't know who's quarterback week to week, right? If, if Jay's not banged up or if it is Matt Moore or whatever the situation may be, it seems like they're with Jay Ajayi now out the door. Do they turn to some of these young backs, have to be heavily scheme run kind of stuff because they're not able to light it up in the pass game. We don't know that, but the point of it is you got a, you got a long list there of, of most of your second-half teams that, that gravitate towards or and are going to need to gravitate towards scheme run stuff, tricking you and moving you around and trying to create holes through your overcommits. So that's, that's a big part of what the defense is going to face in the second half, handling those things and also handling in, in, the light, in light of uh, that probably being what you'd see if you caught Kansas City again in the playoffs or if you catch Pittsburgh, but you're obviously going to see him in the regular season. But handling the scheme runs, a really, really big deal. And I want you guys who are watching this game and trying to do it from a more educated angle to look for those kind of things. Not just the zone stretch run where everyone goes in one one direction or the, the lead plays where it's just a fullback and it's pretty basic power, all the basic stuff you're used to, see, you're used to seeing in, in high school, college, and even some of the NFL. But so, some of the goofier stuff, some of the stuff that's meant to trick you, that's built just for you and your defense. The Patriots are going to have to overcome that. Um, one final thought here defensively, what I think will be big and – my my frame of mind here is sort of shifted. It's taken a month to do it. You know, we're not pom poming here for greatest secondary in the NFL. This isn't. You know, we were having some of those conversations in the off season about, oh, Stephon Gilmore's here now, and him opposite Malcolm. You can now have one of the best corner tandems. We know how highly we feel of the back end with Devin McCourty and Deron Harmon, a really solid fifth, and Patrick Chung always stable and always making plays there at the strong safety position. But I would simply say this, not as a matter of a, well, it is a prediction, um, but I feel like at least we can comfortably say it's going to trend this way, at least in my view. Jonathan Jones has been a revelation. He's a very competitive player. That's a nice addition to this defense. Uh, Johnson Bonamosi has been another of a very similar kind of thing. He's a really nice player that you 
it's an addition to the defense, not just a special teams group. So I think the depth, when you get Stephon Gilmore back and get him playing at the level you expected, all of a sudden I think you're going to look around and say, oh, it's the first week of December, or oh, it's the third week of December, or, oh, we just cleared Thanksgiving, and wow, that was a string of three or four or five really good back-end games. And you know what? This might end up being one of the better secondary groups out there. So as much as they were maligned, and absolutely deservedly so, in that first month, I think this group really has a chance to turn the corner and not just be better than they were that first week, and now the defense is okay, but to damn good. You know, McCourty is still a top high-end guy back there. We've seen Malcolm Butler right himself after some of the bumps in preseason in that first month and be really p- competitive down the stretch. And I think Stephon Gilmore, when we get when we, when you get to the point here where you cut out anything potentially mental, uh, and that should be those kinks should be worked out as you head in here in November, December. Give them a little grace here for a week or two to get back up to speed. But the potential of that whole group, and then maybe even Eric Rowe back off the groin, you're pretty deep. And those are a lot of good football players. So I think we should expect that uh, maybe that group, not for a full season, but for maybe at least a month of work and heading into the playoffs, might be a little closer to what we thought they would be. So this is exciting, and it's going to be an exciting weekend. I'm, I'm hoping you guys enjoy this game. Uh, I bitch about it a little bit more just jokingly, tongue-in-cheek here about the idea of a Sunday night game. Uh, I'll be on Nesson, so make sure you guys check us out there. Um, we don't typically do this because usually I'm at the stadium for home games, and we do a post-game there with Nesson. But uh, this particular weekend, because it's a roadie, and a roadie primetime uh, at 8.30. We're going to be doing a halftime break-in with Jermaine Wiggins and I and uh, host, I'm not sure who's hosting, maybe Adam, Adam Pellerin or Jemai Webster, one of those guys. Somebody, someone will be there in studio with us, and we're actually going to do a live ho- halftime show for you. So we'll do a live halftime break-in, break down all the first half as, as thoroughly as you'll find it anywhere else, try to give you some keys and cues and see if any things we talked about here on the podcast actually showed up. And then we'll also be back with you right after that game live on Nesson to do a post-game show. So we don't always get to do that because the schedule's a little goofy with whether there be hockey or baseball or whatever's going on over there, but it's a unique week. So uh, now that I connected with you guys on the pod, take a look at some of these things we've talked about, and uh, let's see if we can bring them back up there on that show, and uh, we'll look for each other and uh, give you something that we don't unfortunately get to do every week on TV, but we do this week. So let's, uh, let's do it. So... Once again, my name is Matt Chatham. This is The Real Thing Patriots Podcast. Uh, we are very grateful to have you out there as listeners. Uh, thanks for hanging with us after a week off. And as always, continue to share this with friends. Use all the social platforms that are out there to, to spread the good word. We love to see our audience slowly growing and getting to some really impressive numbers. We want to get that thing up as high as possible by the end of the season and uh, really be your home for uh, intelligent Patriots talk, thorough analysis of what is really going on and what's about to happen with you. Give you those professional athletes, uh, former dudes, former players from opposing markets that come in and give you some insight that I never could about what's going on there and just keep filling up your box week after week. Once again, this was the Real Thing Patriots podcast. I'm Matt Chatham. See you on the other side. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.